Father, thank you that in your grace and your mercy you have brought us into this place today. We come here to worship you and to listen to your word as it is, as it is read and explained and applied to us today. We pray that people would be saved in this building today and not just here, but all over the planet. May people come to saving faith in you, Lord Jesus. We pray that believers would be built up, that we'd be a stronger people of God, that you would make us stronger followers of Jesus Christ. So strengthen us by your word and your spirit. And Father, we thank you that you have, in your providence, you have brought our nation to this place where this issue is now being heard before our Supreme Court, and we pray that you might turn back the 50 years of the devourer. We pray that you might restore us to something of national sanity when it comes to the matter of life. So give wisdom, give grace. Surely some of the people involved in that whole thing are your people. Use them for your purposes and use all involved for your purposes, we pray. Now as we turn to the book of Ephesians, open the eyes of our understanding that we may behold wondrous things from your law. We are strangers in the earth. Oh, please, do not hide your commandments from us. For we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So there's the sermon series slide. This is a series in Ephesians chapter 1. And then I know we all have atten short attention spans these days because we ruin ourselves with television sets. And so I know you can't take more than a chapter without getting bored and needing a change. So at that point, we'll radically change to a different series that's called Ephesians chapter 2. And, and, and on and on we'll go with maybe throwing a few topical messages here and there. We're in the series called Ephesians chapter 1 today. We saw in verse 3, after the prologue, after the intro, after the howdy, I'm Paul, here's who you are, and here's why I'm writing. He says, here's where I want you believers to be. Here's what the whole first chapter is pretty much about. I want you at a place in your life where you live blessing God, where that's just flowing out of your soul and flowing out of your mind, and where it's on, on, your, on your tongue and on your lips, you bless the Lord. Well, why can I do that? It's hard living on this planet. Here's why. Because, verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. So Paul's writing that you might be that kind of believer, that you live blessing and blessing and blessing God. How can I do that? Life is hard. Here's how you can do it. You rise above it and focus on the fact that he has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing found in Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Then you say, well, can you name a few? I'm struggling down here on the planet. Can you tell me what some of them are? Paul gives us a list of seven. We've looked at three thus far. Let's review Blessing number one found in verse four is he chose us to be holy before him. Blessing number two found in verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. Blessing number three found in verses seven and eight, he redeemed us and forgave our trespasses. That's enough if you only had those three. You should be able to live every day blessing the Lord. Count your blessings 
Name them one by one, says the old song. You ought to be able to do that. But now we're coming to blessing number four. It's in verse eight, and it is this. Bless him because he revealed his plan to you. He's revealed something to you. He's made something made, made known to you. He revealed his plan to unite all things in Christ. So that's the next blessing, blessing number four, that is revealed in the text, but we're not going there today. Instead, here's what we're doing. Imagine that in these first eight verses, we're up to verse eight now, so we've been driving up a mountain, and the first verse was up to 1,000 feet, and the second verse is up to 2,000 feet, and we are now coming up on 8,000 feet. And on the way up, there have been a lot of S-turns, and there's a lot of trees, and it's all lined, the road's lined, and we haven't seen much except what's right there. It's been a lot, but we've seen the bear that just crossed the road. We've seen the rock. We've seen the squirrel that ran up the tree. We've seen the, the local things on our way up, turn by turn. But now there's a scenic overpass that we're pulling into at 8,000 feet at verse 8. And from this vantage point, it's a good time for us to look back on what we've seen so far, little by little as we came up, and piece some of the broader picture together. So I'm sorry, you're not going to make progress in verse 8 today. I'm not sorry. We're going to piece together some of the big picture items that we couldn't see on our way up, but that we can pause and look back at and see now. There are three big picture items I want us to see today. Here is the first. It is the Trinity. There's Trinity in Ephesians chapter 1, and there's, there are things to learn about the Trinity in Ephesians 1 that are sweet. So we're going to look back down and see the Trinity. The second thing we're going to see in our scenic overpass is the already and the not yet. There's an already and there's a not yet. I'll explain that when we get there. And the third thing we'll see is what I'm calling the riches of his grace, or that's what the text calls it, the riches of his grace. There's more there that we can see from our 8,000-foot vantage point. First, then, the Trinity. We've pulled over. We're looking back down at the verses through which we've come. We're looking down at the mountain and the S-turns that we've come up, and now we can see, looking back, the Trinity. Now you look back at those verses. Now that you've covered them all, there's been the Father, there's been the Son. We're actually coming into the Holy Spirit shortly. And you look back down and you say, ah, this picture emerges, this big picture. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. I see the Trinity in Ephesians chapter 1. You know, in some parts of the Bible, you'll learn that the Father is God. In other parts of the Bible, you'll learn the Son is God. In other parts of the Bible, you'll clearly learn the Spirit is God. But in parts of the Bible like this one, you'll see all three of them working together in human redemption, and you realize that those three go together. Nobody else fits in that group. Nobody else gets to be a part of that. That's only space that Father and Son and Holy Spirit can occupy. There's a trinity in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, what is the trinity? Let me give you a great definition. This is written by R.C. Sproul, who's now in glory. But before he went there, he wrote this for us, quote, the Trinity is the Christian teaching that God consists of three simultaneous eternal persons. Three simultaneous eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he tells us something about them. Each of the three persons is equal in their attributes and nature. 
Each of them is equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in attributes, things that can be said about them, and equal in nature. The very nature of their being is the same. They're not three different kinds of beings. They're the same. They're identical. Theologians call this, here's your new word for the day. How many of you come to Cornerstone because you get a new word? The pressure's on me. I have to have a new word for you every week. I picked up my dad to drive him to a family event yesterday. We had about an hour and a half in the car together one way, just him and me. And he said, I listened to your recent sermon. There were some big words in it, son. I told him, well, listen again, because there's going to be more this week. So here's the big word of the day. It means that there is equality between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what we call the ontology of the Trinity or the ontological Trinity. The ontological Trinity speaks about who they are speaks about their nature or the nature of their being. What are, who are they? What are they made of? What are they like? And the, 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 the doctrine here is that they are identical. They are equal. So any attribute that the Father has, like let's pick one. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. Any attribute the Father has, the Father is omnipresent. The Son is also omnipresent. And the Holy Spirit is also omnipresent. The Father is all wise, so is the Son, so is the Holy Spirit. And on and on through all the attributes, every attribute is equally attributable to each member of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same ontology, the same being, the same nature. However, there are some differences between them, and those come in terms of their roles. R.C. Sproul's definition goes on to say, yes, they are equal in their attributes in nature, but they are different in their roles. And we theologians, we call this uh, the economy of the Trinity or the economic Trinity. It doesn't have anything to do with money, by the way. It's not that kind of economy. It's not like the Father has some cash. The Son has some cash. The Spirit has some cash. It's not that at all. Economy here comes from a Greek word, oikonomeo, which means household management. And there is household management within the family, if you will, of the threesome, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are things that the Father does that the Son does not. There are roles the Spirit plays that the Father does not. This is the economy of the Trinity. This is the economic Trinity, what roles they play, what they do, what tasks they perform. Now let's glance back down the mountain and look at what we've seen so far in Ephesians, and we'll actually have to glance up the mountain a little farther too from our scenic overpass. But in broad strokes, here's what we find out about the economic trinity in Ephesians chapter 1. Not only are they the same in nature and being, but they are different in function and in roles. How so? Here's what they are. Next slide, please. The Father, in verses 3 through 6, is the one who chose and predestined us. So according to his eternal counsel, established in eternity past, and now according to Ephesians 1.11, he is working all things in time according to the counsel of his will. He is the one who did the choosing. The Father chose us. The Father predestined us, Ephesians verses, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Secondly, it is the Son who redeems us. Look at verses 7 through 12. Everything done for our redemption, everything performed, every deed, every role played was, was God the Son. It's God the Son who did all the lammy things. That's why the sacrificial victim animal things. That's why only he is the lamb. 
The Father is not the Lamb. The Spirit is not the Lamb. Only God the Son is the Lamb. How come He gets to be the Lamb? Because He played a different role in human redemption. He redeems us. What about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, we'll see in Ephesians 1, there are more things He does, but in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, He seals us and He guarantees our inheritance. So what are we seeing from our 8,000-foot vantage point? We're looking back down and a little bit up the mountain. We're seeing there's a trinity. There's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nobody else gets in that group. It's just the three of them. We see that they are equal in being, in essence. They, They are equal in their ontology. They're equal in who they are, but they're very unequal. They're different in the roles that they play. In the economy of the trinity, they perform different roles. Let me put it for you simply, and many theologians have put it just this way. This is not just little old me telling you what you're about to see. So here's the economy of the Trinity in our redemption. It is best seen in our redemption. It's also seen in creation. It's seen in God's relationship to the world. They perform different functions and have different relationships to the world, but it's especially seen in our redemption. And in redemption, the Father decreed it, and the Son procured it, and the Spirit applies it. So that's what we find in Ephesians number one, uh, chapter one. It's the Father who decreed it. He chose us. He predestined us before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians one, we see it's the Son who procured it. He's the one who offered his own body on the cross and shed his precious blood for the redemption of our sins. He procured it. And in Ephesians one, it's the Spirit who applies it. In fact, everything purchased by Christ for us on Calvary's cross, how does it get to us? How does it get applied to us? How does it get brought to us? It is the Spirit of God who applies it to you. It's the Spirit of God who opens the eyes of your understanding and illuminates you. He performs the ministry of illumination. So you say, ah, I see the light. I see the gospel. I see the glories of Christ. I see God. And it's the Spirit who regenerates us. He gives you new life and makes you a new creature in Christ. Are you a new creature in Christ? It's the Holy Spirit who made you that new creature. It's by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's the different members of the Trinity perform very different functions in the economy of our redemption. Let's think about the Son in particular. The Son procured it? Yes. Only the Son took on flesh. Only the Son came incarnate. Only the Son was born of a virgin's womb. Only the Son took on a second nature. He's one person, God the second person of the Holy Trinity. He now forever has two natures. He is both fully divine and fully human. Only the Son did that. The Father did not. The Spirit did not. Only the Son took on a second nature. Only the Son grew in His human nature, learned in His human nature. Only the Son suffered under Pontius Pilate. Only the Son died on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross for you. Nor did the Holy Spirit die on the cross for you. The Son, the Lamb, the sacrificial victim, died on the cross for you. Only the Son rose from the dead. Only the Son made post-resurrected, glorified body appearances to his people. Only the Son ascended to the right hand of the Father. Only the Son is seated next to the Father. Only the Son. So this is the economy of, of the Trinity 
They're the same in ontology. They're very different in economy. And again, the Spirit applies whatever we receive from Christ. So I've given you this in like hard and fast categories, but now I'm going to take away the hardness and the fastness of them. So I've said, here's the Son, there's what He does. Here's the Father, here's what He does. Here's the Spirit, here's what He does. But I'm going to take away the hard lines between those categories. There's my term, seepage. There's my term. There's sympathetic participation. What one experiences, the other sympathetically experiences and participates in. The theologians now call this, there is a mutual indwelling. We see this in John chapter 10. Jesus says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He's in me, and I'm in him, which implies what? What I experience, he has a sense of experience, even though the Father did not die on the cross. He was in me, and I was in him when I died on the cross. You're all starting to look cross-eyed, and I get it. We don't understand this stuff, do we? Because we're talking about the Trinity. And as, as soon as you talk about the Trinity, things go very deep, very rapidly. We, we have this phrase in common parlance where we say of something that's, supposed to, that's simple, we say, well, it's not rocket science. This is not rocket science. It's above it, right? Trying to understand the Trinity and the, the inner workings of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus said in John 10, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, in John 14, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. There is a mutual indwelling. It's not like the Father's in a silo, and whatever the Son experiences, the Father has no idea. No, there's a mutual indwelling. The older term that doesn't translate so well in our day was interpenetration. They've changed it now to mutual indwelling. That's better. But long ago, one of the early church fathers named John of Damascus explained it well this way. He said, quote, each Trinitarian person is related to the others, having their being in one another, yet without coalescence. They don't all just merge and become one. Without coalescence and without commingling. There's not a little bit of one in the other. They, they, they're separate persons, and yet one is in the other, and the other is in the one. It's crazy. It's the Trinity. The Greek word that they use for this is perichoresis, which means to have space for the other. The Father has space for the Spirit. Not physical space, but Godhead space. The Son has space for the Father, and so on and so forth, each member for the others. So only Jesus and his humanity was born. Only Jesus took on flesh. Only Jesus suffered. Only Jesus learned and grew in his human nature. Only Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Only Jesus died on the cross. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus ascended to the Father. But does the Father get it? Yes, he does. And does the Holy Spirit get it? Yes, there is a sympathetic participation. There is a mutual indwelling so that when Jesus died, all the members of the Godhead, in a sense, participated sympathetically. They didn't die for you, but they get it. They weren't siloed away from that. Now, why am I taking time to talk about this? Couldn't Pastor Steve, we could have been halfway through verse 8 by now. Why would you pull off in the scenic overpass? Two reasons why we pulled over to see this. One, I hope you'll agree with it. Do we not want to know all that we can about God? Is he not first in our souls now? 
Have we not come by his grace to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength? Would we not part with anything for him? And to know more about him is sweetness to our souls. It's like honey to our, to our lips. So we want to know about him. It thrills us. It delights us. Knowing that the Father decreed and the Son procured and the Spirit applies, and yet they're all sympathetic in what each of the others did in that is a sweet thing for us. So we pulled over to see that, but we also pulled over, you'll get a kick out of this, you'll get a kick out of where I'm going to go with this, don't get mad at me, hang in there with me, because this actually helps us with male and female roles. Now, I'm not going to get on some big bandwagon here, but I do want to take this important opportunity to note for you, you know there's a little going on in the church of Jesus Christ these days about male and female roles. And some want to flatten it, and some want to level it so that the roles are identical. And here's one way that they argue. They say, well, we have ontological identity, males and females. And to a certain extent, I'll agree, they're right. We are equally made in the image of God, and therefore equally of value and of worth and deserving of dignity and love and grace. Equally. Level playing field right there. Amen? Agree. I am going to say, however, this is just a side note. You can forget this in a moment, but, but I, I will not agree that men and women share the same ontology. We are very different. You study it out. We are very different, and viva la difference. It's not better or worse. It's different. It's we need each other different. It's that's beautiful, and so is that different. It's wonderful and wonderful, wonderfully and fearfully, but differently made. You, all right, back from that one. I'd like to speak on that one for a while, but that's not today. But they say, okay, so men and women are, di- are the same, same image of God, same value, same dignity, same worth. Therefore, they reason, we must have the same roles in the family, and we must have the same roles in the church. To which I say, no, read Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, if God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit can be absolutely ontologically identical and equal, yet have vastly different roles assigned to them, then can God not have men and women who are equal in value and worth and dignity and the image of God, but assign them different roles in the family and different roles in the church? All right, don't let me get on a hobby horse there, all right? Let's not get that started, you amen people. Just knock it off, all right? But thank you. So that's the first thing we pulled off to see today, the Trinity, the ontological and the economic Trinity. I hope it's been helpful to you. We're going to look at the second thing from our 8,000-foot vantage point while we're stopped here in the, in the scenic overpass, and it's called the already and the not yet the already and the not yet, is a phrase coined by a theologian who's in heaven now. His name, he's got a cool name. His name is, was Gerhardus Voss. How cool is that? Like mothers, name your sons Gerhardus. Because he was a brilliant theologian at Princeton Seminary, and he was wrestling with something that we're going to see in Ephesians chapters 1, and we'll peek into chapter 2 and some other references as well. But he wrestled with this thing. How do we put it? How do we describe this? I know. I'll call it the already and the not yet. And it stuck. 
And we're still calling what he identified in Ephesians 1 and elsewhere as the already and the not yet. So let's talk a little bit about the already and the not yet. Let's look all the way back down into verse 3, down at 3,000 feet. We're looking down the mountain at it. And we saw back then, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now note these last four words, please. In the heavenly places. That's the phrase we're going to be working with here for this already and not yet. In the heavenly, God has blessed us with spiritual blessings. They're related to, they're in, they come down to us from the heavenly places. These spiritual blessings I'm talking about are not health and wealth now. They're about things that come down to us from the heavenly places. We saw that in Ephesians 1.3. Let's peek ahead to Ephesians 1.20. We're looking up the mountain now to 20,000 feet, and we read about God's power, his power, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So twice already, Paul said, heavenly places, heavenly places. Once, it's you have blessings that are associated with and that are coming down to you from heavenly places. And twice, Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father in those heavenly places. All right, so far, so good. Here's where it gets hard. We're going to peek ahead to Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. Don't ask me how many thousand feet up that is. I don't know how to calculate that one. But let's read it. Here it is. God made us alive and raised us up with him and seated us with him, get this, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Whoa, wait a minute. So there's the heavenly places, verse 3, from which the spiritual blessings that I'm enjoying come down. They're associated with it. There's the heavenly places, in the middle of the chapter, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then there's the heavenly places that we just looked at, where we are seated with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. And you notice it's a past tense. It's done. You're already, you, in Christ, you're there. You're there. You're, you are seated. You have been seated with Christ in those heavenly places. Now, do you see a problem here? I was too vague. None of you are seeing it. I can see it on your faces. So here's the problem. I don't feel very seated in the heavenly places. Right? Like, I, I, I feel pretty much like I'm actually here. How about you, Laban? You feel that? I'm here, man. My feet are on the ground, terra firma, planted earth. This feels real to me. And I don't feel like, like if I was there, I'd be a pretty exalted, holified being, Right? Yeah, and I don't feel so exalted and made holy yet. Like, I, I'm conscious of indwelling sin in me. So I got a problem here. My problem is the Bible tells me I'm already seated with Christ in heavenly places, but I sure don't feel like it. It sure doesn't look like it. How do we explain this? Gerhardus Voss applied his mind to that, and he said, here's how you explain it. In the Christian life, in doctrine, in the Bible, there's the already, and there's the not yet. There are things, I, should, I did that wrong. Yeah, it's the other way around, really. There's the already, you are seated with him, but there's the not yet. You're not really yet seated with him. So here's how we explain this. 
You are here, just in case you got lost there. You are here. You are, you are definitely here, but you're also already there. You're already there, but you're not yet fully there. But here's, here's the thing. The text tells you, this is what you got to get. That is the real you. That's you as you'll be for eternity. That's you with Christ in heaven. This is a sort of temporary you. This is kind of you. This is a provisional you. This is the beta version of you. This is the present version of you. The real you has not yet been released, but it is there. To put it another way, and some theologians use these terms as they talk about the already and the not yet. We live in this weird time called the overlap of the ages. Here's the present age, and here's the age to come, and they've overlapped a little bit, and we're in that. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. Are you in the kingdom of God if you're a follower of Christ? Yes, you are, but you're not yet in the kingdom because the kingdom is yet coming. There's an already, and there's a not yet. So, so we live with this overlap of the ages in which, here's another good word for this, we feel a tension. You live with that tension. Lord, my heart is in the heavenlies where Christ is seated at your right hand. All my loves, all my longings are there, and yet I'm still here. And I grieve the Holy Spirit, and I wound my own conscience, and I step over the boundaries of your laws. I trespass. We feel the tension while we live in this overlap of the ages. I'm already sanctified, but I'm not yet sanctified. I'm a new creation, but I sure don't feel very new sometimes. Let's jump to a parallel passage. At the same time Paul's writing Ephesians, he's writing Colossians, and there are a lot of similar concepts, but stated with different nuances. Let's jump to Colossians chapter 3, and I hope many of you will have already memorized this passage and quoted it to yourself many, many times throughout life. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, and then 3 and 4. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Whoa, past tense. Done. You have been raised with Christ. There's an already, but there's a not yet. You're going to be raised with Christ. But if you've been raised with Christ and you're seated at his right hand, imported from Ephesians, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See, understanding this stuff affects your seeker. You have a seeker inside seeking. What am I, what's it going to lock on? What's it seek? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, accomplished, and your life is hidden. We can't see it. We're seeing this one. This is not the real one. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What words, what truths, what composition. The Spirit gave Paul those words. And what's it add up to? This present is a very transitional you, a very temporary you, a very provisional you, a very weak representative of the you that is now already hidden in Christ and that shall appear with him in glory. 
man, this can help you with a lot of things in your Christian life. I'll just mention one of them. Knowing that that's the real me and this is just a little temporary provisional me, I want to do what Colossians 3 says. I want to set my mind. We should be heavenly-minded people because we're there, seated there with Christ. You hear the phrase sometimes, well, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. You can't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Please be more heavenly-minded. The things of Christ are on your mind. They're in your soul. They're, they're your passions. They're your loves. We should be a very heavenly-minded people because we understand the already and the not yet. So there we go. i got to move on. We've looked at the Trinity We've looked at the already and the not yet, and now we want to look at one more thing, looking back down the mountain and up a little bit too on the mountain. We want to look thirdly at the riches of his grace. Would you allow me to switch metaphors? Would that jerk you around too much? Instead of the climbing the mountain metaphor, can I switch metaphors? Okay, we're going to drive back down to, uh, well, it's verse 7. We're going to look back down at verse 7. It's not a long drive. And we're going to tailgate there a little bit. And when we tailgate, there's something in verse 7 that's a nice big red blood orange. I like blood oranges. And when I was a kid, my mother had this little machine. It was mechanical. It had no motor. You operated it like this. Do you know what machine I'm talking about? You would cut the orange in half and put half of it in there, put the lid on and go, and it would squeeze out all the juice. We're going to take some of what's in verse 7 and juice it. All right? While we're tailgating up here at 8,000 feet. We're going to take some of verse 7 and juice it. So let's, let's read about the riches of his grace and get a little bit more out of it. Here's what it says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what standard? How far can God go with that? How many trespasses of mine can be forgiven? Oh, here's the answer. According to... The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. No matter how great your sin, the grace of God is greater, and the blood of Jesus Christ can wash it away. The riches that have been lavished upon us. The riches of what? Of grace. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. You did not earn it. You do not deserve it. God freely gives it to you. The word grace appears 39 times in the New Testament. 26 of them were Paul. Paul is all about the grace of God. Your salvation is all by the grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this text tells us there are riches of that grace. And he lavished them. He didn't get a little, little teardrop thing and go, okay, I, I'm going to give you some grace. Are you ready? You get one drop. Here it is. Bink. No, no. He lavished upon you from the riches. You imagine the universe. How in the world big is the universe? And it's expanding greater, greater than the speed of light? I think I read that. They think it's actually, I know that can't be, it breaks... It breaks physics, but anyway, it's expanding fast. And if you fill the whole universe with the grace of God, you haven't begun to search the riches of the grace of God. It's that, it's that big. Let's read some more about the grace of God. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. He predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. Here it's glorious grace. And back to verse 
verses 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Let's go to Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages he might show what is God doing on the planet? What is all of this about? Why did he create? Why did he allow the fall? Why is he redeeming? Why is there a judgment day? Why is there a heaven? Why is there a hell? It's all here that he might show. He's showing something that he would not be able to show without a fallen world, without needy sinners, without a gracious Savior. He's showing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, the immeasurable riches. Let's go to Ephesians 3.8. Paul's all over this riches of grace theme. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable is a Greek word with two intensifying prepositions on the front. It would be like if we said super duper grace. that I might preach the super-duper riches of the grace of Christ. Let me jump ship to 1 Timothy, written to Timothy when he was in Ephesus. And Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Thank God for that mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me. Another super, superlative upon superlative. It superabounded. It overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul had this sense. God's grace had to overflow for a sinner like me, and it did. Older versions of the Bible have grace abounding, and the great author John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote an autobiography, a spiritual autobiography, and he titled it Grace Abounding in the Chief of Sinners. And he got that from this verse. There's this amazing grace. A couple more quick references. Romans 5.20, jumping over to that hill. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Why did God give his law? So we'd see our sins for what they are. So the trespass would increase. We'd go, oh, I am a sinner. Look at the law. I've broken that and that and that. that. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back to our text, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So we've seen the Trinity, we've seen the already and the not yet, and we've seen something about the riches of his grace. I want to close with this. You're a believer. Are you a believer? Most of you are probably believers. Do you have a sense of the riches of God's grace, which he's conferred upon you? How am I supposed to live in this difficult world with a blessed on my lips? Because you understand the riches of his grace, his mercy, his love given to you in Christ Jesus. Some of you are not believers. You don't understand the riches of his grace. But you can. If you will let the law of God show you what a sinner you are 
and the cross of Christ show you the riches of God's grace and you the sinner bow and receive that grace. Mm. And that's to the praise of God's glory. So I'm going to assume some of you are not yet believers and I'm going to pray right now like I'm you. Would you pray along with me? Only if it's in your heart. The words aren't what matters. It's your heart. It's you and God. But if you're ready to do business with you and God, would you pray with me now? And let's bow and pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing each person here to hear these words from the Bible. Some of them especially need to know you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior, as their Lamb. So we pray that you will send the Holy Spirit to illuminate them, that you will send the Holy Spirit to regenerate them, to give them eyes of faith. And may they believe on you. Lord Jesus, I'm believing on you. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive my trespasses to cancel out the debt of my sins through your death on the cross. Lord Jesus, remember me in your kingdom when you come. And Father, we who are your people, would you make us a way, way, way more heavenly-minded people, we pray. Asking all in the name of Christ, amen.